In a dramatic reversal of how these matters were previously addressed, private antitrust litigation cases across Europe have surged in recent years. Jones Day Partners' Dr. Jürgen Beninka and Nicholas Cotter are here to discuss the impact of the EU Damages Directive, the types of cases they're seeing, and the trends clients and interested parties need to watch. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Based in Jones Day's Frankfurt office, Dr. Jürgen Beninka counsels European and U.S. corporate clients on antitrust regulatory compliance and represents businesses before cartel authorities, including the German Federal Cartel Office and the European Commission. He also argues before courts in antitrust matters. Partner Nick Cotter represents clients in high-value antitrust and regulatory litigation. Based in London, he has obtained groundbreaking judgments in the competition sphere in the English High Court and Court of Appeal. Nick also acts for clients in general commercial disputes, both litigating and in arbitration. Jürgen, Nick, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks, Dave, for the invitation. Yeah, thanks, Dave. We're talking about private antitrust litigation in Europe. And in fact, this will be the first in a series we're going to call Jones Day Talks, Private Antitrust Litigation in Europe. This is the first of what we hope will be several very, very informative podcasts. Let's start with Jürgen. Give us a general overview of private enforcement of competition laws in the EU. What's the, what's the high level view as we speak today? Private antitrust litigation has certainly seen tremendous developments over the last two decades. When I started practicing antitrust law in 1998, private enforcement was in Germany at least non-existent. People believed that the antitrust laws only protect the market as a concept and not suppliers or, or customers of industry. This has changed tremendously over the last two decades. According to statistics published by the EU, you know, we have had only a couple of dozen cases in the early decade, in the first decade of the last of this century. This has certainly changed according to information published by the German Bundeskartell, the German Federal Cartel Office. Mm-hmm. We have had uh, more than 640 cases in the last three years in one cartel only. Today, I think one can really say that private antitrust enforcement is the rule and not the exception as it has been in the past. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you know, this has been become more and more common. Sure. So previously, the mindset, if you will, was we're protecting the market, make sure anti-competitive matters aren't coming forward and limiting market activity. Now, it's flipped to where private parties are seeking damages or looking to prevent or, or handle these matters on their own in private litigation. So it, it has been a complete flip, hasn't it? It has indeed. And one should also say that, at least in Germany, in the good old days, <laughs> depending, of course, on what position you are standing <laughs> on, right. German major corporates did not sue each other. Mm-hmm. Oh. This has certainly changed. I think the corporate governance laws have had a significant impact. Now, CEO of a German publicly listed company feels an obligation to at least check whether pursuing antitrust damage claims makes sense from a commercial perspective once a company has found out that it has been a victim of a cartel. And that was not the case certainly 20 years ago. Now, that is interesting. 
major corporates weren't suing each other in Germany up until fairly recently over antitrust type matters at least I I wouldn't have thought that and you know I, I think you know the cases may be different in different jurisdictions but that that is an interesting development let's go over to Nick for a second Nick talk about the number of cases how, how they've accelerated in recent years and, and what you make of the trend yeah I mean I have to I have to say I agree with what uh, Jurgen has just said I mean the UK has been slightly different in terms of I think there's been a fairly good run increasing antitrust litigation in the UK probably for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. It's funny when you talk about what competition policy and litigation used to be and how that's changed over time. In the UK in the early 2000s competition law was enforced by the antitrust authorities to protect markets. Where it came up in litigation, there wasn't really claimants seeking damages for antitrust infringements. It tended to come up on the defence side, and it was kind of the last possible defence for the bad defendant who tried to reverse himself or herself or itself out of a exclusive distribution agreement, a contract. And when you face no other defence to a breach of contract for basically acting contrary to the contract, mm-hmm. Y- mm-hmm. You, would, you would move towards, well, the contract is void because it is exclusive and it infringes competition law. And w- we ran that defence in a breach of contract claim in the early 2000s mm-hmm. where our client had uh, sought to escape an exclusive distribution agreement for mobility scooters being imported into the UK generally failed it yeah. creates i think it was raised as a defense generally to give a bargaining chip in uh, negotiations but you know that that was how competition law was tended to play out in mm. in litigation and and there were there were various changes in the early 2000s in terms of the the direct effect as was there of european competition law in, in the uk for private litigants to rely on but a new court was created in the UK in around 2003, the Competition Appeal Tribunal, which, as mm-hmm. the name suggests, was a, a specialist court to deal with these kind of claims. And, and that combined with the general courts, the high courts, taking a lot more antitrust claims, saw a development from about the early 2000s mm-hmm. in basically, as, as you've been talking about, the, the claimant who has suffered from an antitrust infringement seeking damages. And that's really grown over the last 15 years. Gonna, all right. Jürgen, in the notes you sent over for preparation for today's program, and you were kind enough to, to send us some background information, you talked about two primary drivers of the development and in the increased caseload, if you will. Talk about what they are and what kind of impact they're having as we speak today. Happy to do so. I think one very important driver is, of course, the development of the case law of the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. Um, Without major decisions at the beginning of the 2000s, in particular the famous cases Courage and Manfredi, it's clear that courts in the EU national member states would not have recognized the relevance of the antitrust law and the extent that these antitrust laws protect the respective other 
market sites, as you want to speak. So, so that, that customers of a cartel are being protected, that is certainly due to these groundbreaking decisions mm -hmm. in the early 2000s by the European Court of Justice. And then in the aftermath, we have seen a series of legislative developments facilitating the pursuit of private antitrust damages claims uh, okay. on the national level. And at the same time, the European Commission has always been trying to push legislative developments in that respect, which culminated in the end in the EU Antitrust Damages Directive that was uh, adopted in uh, late 2014, had to be transposed into national law at the end of 2016. Mm -hmm. And that has been in another very important driver of the development. The European Commission stated this summer that it's going to perform a study on how, you know, these provisions that had to be enacted because of this damages directive mm -hmm. have influenced the process of pursuing antitrust damages claims uh, on a, a national member state level. And I think we were going to see uh, the first results probably in the summer of next year. Interesting. You know, let's stay with Jurgen for a second. Talk more specifically, if you can, about the damages directive. You know, what does it define in terms of how cases are played out? Obviously, it was a start, well, not startling, but certainly a, an impactful development. So can you talk more about what it actually does in practice? The EU damages directive, I think, is such a broad topic, one could have a podcast or a series of podcasts sure. <laughs> on this topic alone. This <laughs> is really will. amazing. You're going to feel willing, I'm willing. Why not, right? But, yeah, I know the antitrust damages directive has also a very long legislative history. The commission has been convinced since the late 1990s, early 2000s, that public antitrust enforcement needs to be supplemented by private antitrust litigation and enforcement. Okay. And that conviction led to a series of attempts to establish legislative tools and developments to promote the pursuit of antitrust damages claims by affected parties. At the beginning, at some point in time, the Commission was trying to propose certain changes to the codes of civil procedure in the EU member state level and, and received a pushback simply because the Commission lacked jurisdiction mm -hmm. in that respect. So it changed course and it focused more on the material provisions and cut a long story short, mm -hmm. uh, in end of 2014, the antitrust damages directive was enacted. It has to be transposed into national law by the end of 2016. That has been the case. And if we look at the damages directive and the provisions that had to be enacted as a result of that, I think we can identify the following groups uh, of uh, groups of, of provisions. Uh -huh. First of all, and that's really important because that has not been the case in every EU member state, the entitlement of a victim of a cartel to full compensation, uh -huh. and that includes compensation for the actual loss, loss of profit and interest. Okay. Second, tools for getting access to relevant evidence, which is really an important aspect in Europe because most European jurisdictions until today do not have a kind of discovery mechanism. Mm 
Mm-hmm. The third major important point is that the infringement decision of, for instance, the Bundeskartellamt, the German Federal Cartel Office, constitutes full evidence of the violation of the antitrust laws in German litigation. And that is, of course, an important step forward because then the plaintiff only has to show causation in essence and, of course, the damage. Mm-hmm. We have seen also further minimum statute of limitation periods, okay. which now at least five years. Ah. We have rules on the so-called passing on defense and also very important, the rules by, of the damages directive established joint and several liability of all tort fees of all cartel members, mm-hmm. including the claim for contribution. And that's, of course, an important difference to the situation in the U.S. I see. I see. You're right. That was a lot to unpack, and it's certainly complicated. I'm sure we'll talk more about all this moving forward. Let's go back to Nick for a second. Nick, you touched on this a little bit already about the types of specific cases you're seeing, but can you walk us through what a typical case might be like in, in terms of private enforcement? Sure. There's two types of case, really, that we're seeing, particularly in the U.K., and one is more usual than the latter, but the latter is quite interesting. I mean, so there's your fairly standard, whether it's in the high court or competition appeal tribunal, claimant seeking damages in relation to an antitrust infringement. So whether that is a claimant who sees, let's say, a European Commission decision and wants to rely on that to seek compensation from the infringer. And that tends to be... It will be one or a small group of uh, claimants who issue a claim. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute, mm-hmm. uh, because that is the highest volume of cases that have been filed over the last 15, 20 years in the UK. More and more claimants prepared to take on a potential infringer, so where there is no EC decision, and that's called a standalone litigation, where you have to show there was an infringement versus the litigation based on a, a decision of, a, of the European Commission or UK Antitrust Authority, which is a follow-on claim, which kind of sues in relation to that decision rather than having to establish an infringement from scratch. I mean, but both, are, both will be a small number of claimants generally, and they will follow a fairly traditional litigation process, which will be familiar to many litigants in the UK. So... So you, you, you will have uh, the, the, the claim set out in a claim submission, which is filed at court. The, the defendant puts in a defense. And then you have, a, after a, an initial, it's called a case management conference, but basically mm-hmm. a, a hearing to determine how the litigation will proceed to trial, you'll have a process whereby you have document discovery, which will take, it can be expensive, will take several months. You will have, you know, each side will put in the evidence from witnesses it wants to rely on. Mm. And there's generally, particularly in this uh, antitrust litigation, uh, extensive expert evidence from economists and accountants trying to assess the impact of infringements. And following that, you you, you will usually have a trial. It might be three, four weeks. It might be longer. And it's a process taking a a couple of years. So that's kind of the standard litigation process. The interesting new area that we're seeing is is since a statute in the um, 2015 in the UK, there was the introduction 
in the area of antitrust of a more U.S. style class action mm-hmm. where you have the ability of a representative or a, a single claimant to, to seek uh, the certification of a class in relation to an antitrust infringement, mm-hmm. a certification hearing, and then following that, a more standard litigation process. But again, it's a it's a class claim which never existed in in the UK and I think more generally in Europe beforehand in the US style where a single individual brings a claim for the whole class have an aggregate damages award covering the whole of the loss caused to that class by the infringement mm-hmm. and then a method to distribute that to the to the class members so yeah. that's an interesting development in recent years it's going to be a a different type of case that will be brought in relation to antitrust infringements it's really early days in that area but there's been they all have to be brought in the competition appeal tribunal which is essentially the expert court which will now deal with certification a few have been filed the first two failed to get to be certified what one of those has proceeded up and we're waiting a decision on that from the supreme court in the uk as to the certification test that will be applied but there's, there's probably about 10 filed claims in the CAT, uh, the Competition Appeal Tribunal, which are now waiting to find out how certification will take place. And they will then proceed in what is this new style of litigation, so certification hearing and a class claim that proceeds from that. And so it's an interesting development. And so they're really the two types of cases that we see. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's the, the standard litigation process for an individual claimant to seek damages from an infringement, and then there's this new class claim. Interesting development there for certain. Nick, let's stay with you for another minute, then we'll swing back to Jurgen. What, generally speaking, do clients need to know or understand about these cases that maybe we haven't covered? What What surprises them, or what's kind of lurking around the corner that maybe they didn't expect in terms of knowing what they should know about a matter like this? Yeah, I suppose from the defense side, so bear in mind this that the origin of most of these cases in litigation is an, is an antitrust decision, an antitrust authority's decision. I think from the defense side, what defendants have started to understand is that these claims, these litigation claims that follow on from an infringement are really now a fact of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few, there are very few, I guess, decisions where you don't then face litigation after it. And so it's something that they, that defendants have to, or potential antitrust infringers have to think about as soon as they become embroiled in a antitrust authority investigation. It'll become more more standard in terms of the thought processes. But, you know, when you're involved in an antitrust investigation, you know, there's a desire to handle that to get to minimize what well, to avoid a potential infringement to minimize the fine but the latter you may have to cooperate have to provide documents you have to you going forward and i think on a people or defendants already have to are already doing it you have to think about what you actually provide because you know that it can bite you down the line in litigation when claimants screen claims based on the, the facts that have been disclosed to the antitrust authority and found in a decision. So for the defence side, I think 
you know, what do you need to understand? You need to understand that these claims are now a fact of life and you have to prepare for them from as soon as I think you become embroiled in an antitrust authority. Okay. From both sides, the defence and the claimant side, I mean, what you need to understand probably is these litigations are long and costly, particularly when you have expert economists involved who can be very expensive. They're not as likely to settle as they once were. What we've seen in recent years is that they've started to litigate to trial. I think in the early years, when a defendant's facing this type of claim thought there is a finding of infringement by an antitrust authority, there's no upside in litigating. Try and settle, and most of these cases settled. But, but I mean, what we're seeing is more litigating to trial and a number of litigated to trial. There was an interesting litigation in relation to a, the power cables infringement decision of the European Commission, where there was a trial on that brought against ABB, one of the power cable companies, and the claimants really didn't, they recovered a fraction of what they're expecting to recover. And I think that as we'll see more and more claims litigate as defendants have seen that there is an upside of litigation because you may not pay anything like the claim size based on on that, that decision. People are growing to understand them these antitrust litigations and they're the kind of things that they're learning over time another interesting angle which we haven't really touched on but has fueled some of the development is the growing amount of litigation funding that's available for claimants bringing these claims and so that is driving the volumes of antitrust litigations and people are grappling and getting to understand the pros and cons of funding uh-huh. I mean, The obvious pro of funding for a claimant is that you can litigate without needing to fork out too much in in money. But, you know, the downside is they tend to litigate for longer because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. once you've got a litigation funder looking for a slice of the damages. Right. You know, Nick, I remember hearing about something like that. It was sort of, and I could be wrong, but I remember reading some of our commentaries and alerts here at Jones Day. That was an Australian phenomenon for a long time, I thought. You know, litigation funding or class action suit funding in particular. Is this new? I guess it is new, you said, to the UK, correct? Yeah, it's it's in in the last probably, uh, new, new, I mean, it's probably four or five years. Okay. Because it's easy, isn't it? As a claimant, it's easy to bring a funded claim because you're not having to spend, even to issue a claim in the UK, costs you £10,000. I mean, it's it's not a a kind of step to be taken lightly, but if someone else is funding it, it's easy. But then it can embroil you in a lot longer litigation because you you need to recover a lot more, which makes it harder to settle in Uh. order to take some money yourself as a claimant, knowing that the funder's going to take however many percent. Right, right. Okay. Well, hey, this I think been... what, what Nick just said, I think, applies not only for the UK, but also for, for the entire of Europe. All, um, all the EU. We, okay. Absolutely. We see these uh, litigation financing firms everywhere. Mm-hmm. They have certainly for a certain group of potential plaintiffs, claimants, an attractive offer because let's face it if you are for instance a small a trucking company you have purchased two or three different trucks over the last 10 years 
it does not really make sense for you to pursue the claim yourself against the trucking cartel. Sure. So teaming up with other companies in a similar situation, teaming up with a litigation funding firm from their perspective uh, may make perfect sense. On the other hand, it's clear these firms, you know, they do not anything um, <laughs> on the cheap side. Yeah. They request a significant share. Sure. And and we have uh, had a number of, of, of clients who have uh, discussed uh, detailed arrangements with funding firms, but decided in the end to to finance the litigation by themselves because they said, you know, the share that these companies are asking for is simply too high. Yeah, don't come cheap. I'm certain. I'm certain. Yeah. So let's wrap it up with this. And this has been very very informative. Uh, great program. Thanks. You're gonna let's stay with you and and Nick. Please feel free to weigh in also. But what kind of trends are you seeing? Are we going to continue to see an escalation in cases? Are there regulatory or other developments coming our audience should be aware of? Where do you see this in the next 18 months or two years, say? With respect to one important trend I think we have just covered, and that is indeed litigation funding okay. that will continue to be with us for the foreseeable future. We see right now certainly a peak in cases because of the trucks cartel, because of the statute of limitation period, we do mm -hmm. not expect that there will be uh, the same kind of increase over the next couple of years. Okay. But of course, new cartels will come up and you know, it's not the case that only cases against the trucks cartel were filed in Germany. We have seen cases filed against the sugar manufacturers, cement manufacturers, uh, fire trucks manufacturers, hmm. uh, you name it. It's really broad. You know, whenever there is a cartel decision by the Bundeskartell or the EC, mm -hmm. there will be litigation. That will continue to be the case. That's clear. We will also see additional legislative action by the European Commission. As I said before, the Commission plans a study to evaluate the need for additional legislative action and the aftermath of the antitrust damages directive. Mm -hmm. And what I also expect that at some point in time we are going to see either in a particular member state or in more and more member states or on the basis of European legislation, a class action mechanism in some form for antitrust damages claims, which we do not have right now, at least in Germany. Okay. And, and that, once we have that, that is certainly going to be a game changer because I mentioned before the passing on defense. It's often the case that only commercial customers have the incentive to pursue a claim. However, the consumer that has ultimately borne the damage of the cartel, the vitamins cartel in the early 2000s, a typical example, mm -hmm. the typical consumer does not have incentives to bring a claim. And I see a trend in the political discussion all over Europe that more and more political parties seeing the need to address that deficit right now that exists. Okay from their perspective, and uh, as a result, I think uh, sooner or later we will see some sort of uh, class action mechanism. Uh, it's important to recall for our U.S. audience in particular that class actions are seen very critical in continental Europe. They are considered to be abusive, but I think there's a growing belief that we need to have some sort of mechanism because there are certain deficits will remain 
on the basis of the existing legislation. Mm -hmm. And it's likely to be an opt-in mechanism rather than an opt-out mechanism, but I think at some point in time we were going to see that. Interesting trend to watch. You know, the title of this podcast has been Private Antitrust Litigation in Europe, The Big Picture, and we certainly got a, a great overview of that. So this has been very informative. Nick, Jürgen, thank you so much. Jürgen, you and I are going to be talking again shortly about uh, private antitrust litigation in Germany. So we're looking forward to that as this series continues. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank Thank you. you. All right. Take care. For more information on Jones Day's antitrust and competition law and global disputes practices, please visit jonesday.com. You can also find complete biographies for Jürgen and Nick on the site. And while you're there, be sure to visit our Insights page where you'll see white papers, client alerts, newsletters, more podcast videos, and other valuable content. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find quality podcasts. As always, we thank you for listening. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.